Um, part of the um, initial impetus for this event was that we had a number of um, graduate students here in Birkbeck who were grappling with um, difficult feelings in terms of their own research projects. And you've heard some of them um, discuss them today. Um, and one of the people who was guiding them um, unwittingly along that journey um, was Jennifer Doyle. Um, so the other impetus in developing today's, uh, the, the workshop of the past two days, um, was to um, invite her here to join us. And when she said yes, um, I and the other people involved in organising the event um, were really delighted that she came all the way um, from California to be with us here for the past two days and to contribute so generously. Um, Jennifer is the author of Campus Sex, Campus Security, a book which we were discussing here a few um, days ago, also unknown to Jennifer, as part of a panel on sexual harassment, um, and Hold It Against Me, Difficulty and Emotion in Contemporary Art, another book which has featured quite prominently in the past couple of days, and Sex Objects, Art and the Dialectic of Desire. She is Professor of English at the University of California, Riverside, and has guest curated the performance series Tip of Her Tongue for the Broad Museum, and guest curated Now Bustamante Soldadera for the Vincent Price Museum in East Los Angeles. She was the 2013 to 14 Fulbright Distinguished Chair at the Center for Transnational Research in Art, Identity and Nation at the University of the Arts London, and is the recipient of an Arts Writers Grant both in support of a forthcoming book on art and sport. And today, Jennifer's talk is titled M and Them, Gender, Grief and Pedagogy. Hi. Um, thank you so much for bringing me here. It's a very crazy time in our term, and so it feels so luxurious to have skedaddled out of town and to have spent two days listening to people um, share most of what seems like mainly work in progress or, or you know, talking about uh, the process of making their work. And I, it's just an extremely generous way uh, to, to be with each other as scholars. So um, I have really enjoyed the past two days and I feel so nourished by it. And um, so uh, I am presenting here, this is an essay that will be published sometime next year in a journal called Polygraph, and what's going to be published there is actually now an older version of the essay. And um, so I'm finishing a book on art and sport, but also, I've also uh, decided to take essays that I've written on friendship, grief, and loss, uh, since two, essays published since about 2004, and I'm actually rewriting them as... Uh, uh, a book called Queer Theory and the Scene of Friendship. Um, and so it's, uh, it'll be much more explicitly autobiographical than my work has been. While I use a lot of anecdote, I don't always actually talk about myself in a funny way. Like, you know, I'm not that revealing. And so this is intended to be uh, quite explicitly a book uh, on the relationship of queer theory and friendship for me, uh, may told mainly through my friendship with Jose Munoz and having been Eve uh, Sedgwick's uh, student with him. And so, uh, you know, and uh, obviously uh, this is also a kind of a grief project. And um, I came to this after Jose died um, and um, 
And also that same year, uh, Adrian Howells died, and I wrote an essay for Dominic Johnson and the folks who were organized the really tremendous anthology of writing on Adrian Howells. And um, it was actually, I was kind of processing Jose's death, actually, while writing about Adrian. And, um, and there was this real pileup um, of grief. And um, as I was, I've been reflecting on that experience of uh, memorializing essays for Jose, uh, writing about Adrian, and then I went back and was like looking at my past work and realized I've been sort of talking about loss and friendship and love for a long time, you know. And so like there's you know anyway. So that's this uh, this is a uh, um, very much work in progress and um, it's pretty broken in some ways. I can't always hear when I'm talking about a scene that's really intimate and not necessarily legible. To people, so um, I'll try to make sure I fill in any gaps. But um, the essay is called M and Them, and um, I am uh, grateful that you're willing to uh, share this. That it, it rhymes with a lot of what people have been talking about for the past two days. So, um, so um, on uh, December second, 2016, 36 people died in a fire in Oakland, California. They were attending an electronic music concert at the Ghost Ship a makeshift, unpermitted artist colony in a warehouse. Nothing about that space was safe. The wiring was dangerous. It was filled with wood furniture, pianos, tapestries, paper. The concert was taking place in a loft ex accessed by a single rickety um, DIY staircase. There was no other way out. News stories about the people who died in the ghost ship fire feature a photograph of M.B., quote, a poet and barista. She is fair-skinned with short, spiky, light brown hair. She's wearing thick, amber-framed sunglasses. Her mouth is wide open, as if she were speaking and smiling at once. She has nose piercings on each side of her nose, and her earlobes are marked by more body modification. Her arm is slung around a long-nosed black dog who looks pensive and relaxed. It looks like they are about to spend the day with the photographer. The portrait implies a future. When I saw this photograph, I thought M looked familiar, fierce, feminist, goofy, a dog lover. She looked like people I know. She looked like my people. She looked, in fact, a lot like my teacher, Eve Sedgwick. Eve died of cancer in 2009. A colleague sent our department an email a couple days later. A former student had died, M. Bulka. When she was on our campus, she had not yet transitioned. M was trans, and at the time she was my student, she was enrolled under a different name. M was a shimmering presence in a 2012 course on literature and sexuality, which I'm just actually, I haven't taught it since, and I just finished teaching it uh, for the first time in five years. So looking for traces of M in my files, I find an email correspondence about a heavy conversation we had one afternoon during office hours. I find and I read her final paper. I open a desktop file, Notes on Participation, English 122, at the top of a list titled Outstanding Contributions to Class is the name Bulka, no first name. When she appears in my memory, she is standing up in the middle of the classroom as if she has been called to attention. I see her as she was then, tall and thin, serious. I look for traces of who she was becoming. M was working as a barista. She was planning to move to New York. M.B. died in a fire at an Oakland DIY space that was hosting a night of experimental music and queer community. She died in an unpermitted communal home, a place that had operated as a performance venue. 
a celebration of Bay Area sensibility and its ephemera. Ghost Ship offered limited ramshackle shelter from real estate storm. She died in a terrible conflagration. Lawsuits mushroom up from its ash heap, criminal charges. The administration of accountability has taken over the narrative as the city and insurance companies sift through the fire's ashes looking for the responsible. And I should say uh, there's a handful of people on trial right now. The reception of this news at school was muffled. How do we grieve from inside the institution? Certain forms of loss cannot be folded into the institution's sense of its own mythologies, its origin story, its sense of purpose. Em and I had had a few conversations outside the classroom. She was looking for places where she could be. I told her to look for queer music spaces, of all things, social scenes, clubs. I talked with her about how much these spaces do for so many different people, including me. She talked with me about how much she cared for the people in her life. She talked with me about grad school. She was then coming out. She was on her way. That fire at Ghost Ship took people from my extended family, friends of friends, children of friends, and a former student. It would not be long before I realized that I was connected pretty closely to M's father. We ran into each other a few weeks after the fire at a friend's house. He is a part of my extended sexual community, the lover of someone in my family. How do we talk to each other across such different ways of knowing a person, across such an asymmetrical grief relation? Did I ask him how he was doing? I saw something related to M in him, a lesbian sort of intensity. It's hard to name. Feminism, a presence to sexuality. I looked around the room, academics, artists, small business owners, self-employed body workers and hair artists, students and family. What binds us? What allows us to welcome, recognize, and talk to each other? What holds us in relationship to each other, if not that thing that signaled in the word queer? What that word means shifts, as words do. Queerness for me, as a student of Eve Sedgwick's, describes a commitment to a sense of differences, to the spaces between us, the incommensurability of our differences from each other, the never smooth, never fully translatable, never reducible. Jose Munoz, who was a student of Eve's, described this quality as, quote, the sense of the incommensurate, end quote. I think he's borrowing from Nancy when he's writing that. In the immediate wake of the news of M's death, I write, I write a few sentences for an office, a university office handling media queries. I ask if the campus media office planned to send out some kind of notice, some kind of remembrance to the university as a whole. I was told it isn't policy to do this every time a former student dies. The person who told me this was struggling with the question and with the situation. I thought of organizing a memorial, perhaps, but the idea of doing so on campus felt wrong. And who was I to, do, to organize such a thing? I didn't know who her friends were. That hesitation, the impulse, the abandonment of it has a history. My friend Brian uh, committed suicide in 1997 when we were in graduate school. In an article on his death, the school paper shared details from the police report. It was, this is a student authored story. Um, that that um, student shared the details from the police report telling the story of how he killed himself for a community of readers that, inclined, that included Brian's students. Um, and this would be the way they would learn that he had died, right? That same article included a quote from the dean of the graduate school, which reduced Brian to someone who had not pro made progress in his dissertation. Quote, Selsky, who had been a graduate student since 1989, was not registered at the university for the fall semester, said associate dean of the graduate school, Lee Deneef. 
Although Selsky had been in the department for a number of years, Deneuve continued, he had not yet finished his preliminary examinations nor formed a dissertation committee, end quote. He then went on to say that, of course, they would organize some form of memorial. Sliding back online, I discovered that in 1997, I wrote a letter to the editor, which is very me, of course, (laughs) a brief complaint. Um, Our friend Gus Stadler, who was, like me, close to Brian um, and is a professor at Haverford uh, College um, in Pennsylvania, Gus also wrote a letter, and I'll share that here. His is better than mine, quote, the October 17th article published in the Chronicle presents a distorted picture of Brian Selsky and the tragedy of his death. In fact, Brian was a gifted teacher and writer whose brilliant mind, finely attuned ear, and committed commitment to aesthetics and justice inspired and moved dozens of university students, undergraduates, and graduates. That the Chronicle and the people it interviewed were ignorant of or indifferent to Brian's years of passionate service to the university's intellectual community is astounding and insulting and would seem to indicate the university's own need to reevaluate its educational and ethical priorities. It might consider doing so before holding a memorial service to him, for him, signed Gustavus Sadler. Other students wrote a longer, searing letter on behalf of the department. It was signed by nearly everyone. I remember very intense discussions with fellow graduate students about our obligations to the undergraduate who wrote that story. story. He had to learn, and if I remember right, it was us who taught him. Uh, why what he had done was wrong and how he might have done it differently. At the time, 20 years ago, I lived across the street from campus and down the road from Brian's apartment. I usually run to clear my head, but that year, whenever I ran, I felt my throat close with rage. I got a fellowship that allowed me to move away while I looked for a job. The impact of Brian's death still ricochets in the circle of people who studied with him. The pink program for his memorial has been pinned to the bulletin board above my desk for 20 years. Brian was very dear to us, and he was very dear to Jose Munoz. Jose speaks to Brian's importance to him in a remarkable essay on Freddie Herco, the artist who committed suicide with a legendary drug-fueled jeté out a window. He describes visiting the site of Herco's death, a sidewalk in the neighborhood where Jose lived. He describes thinking of those around him around Jose, who have struggled with suicidal depression or who have lost loved ones to its terrible grip. Quote, but I mostly thought about my best friend from graduate school. I recall all the dreams I have had about him and still have about him, in which he is mysteriously alive and living in the walls of my apartment. I discover his lingering presence in this recurring dream, and I somehow know it is my job to get him out, to save him. I never do. I always fail. End quote. That's in Cruising Utopia. I now know that when, press, when, the, when the press contacts university offices looking for something to put in a story about the death of a member of the campus community, things happen, like the perilous reporting of Brian's death. Someone looks up the nature of that person's affiliation, and if that affiliation is worn out, weak, broken, the institutional discourse on their death will map the distance between that person and the institution's sense of its community. Mary Douglas opens her book, How Institutions Think, with a series of sobering observations about the fragility of our attachments to each other when those attachments are routed through institutions. She begins by noting the difficulty of addressing this subject at all. And this is a pretty long block quote. Writing about cooperation and solidarity means writing at the same time about rejection and mistrust. And I think all the Me Too and sexual harassment stuff is actually about this, right? 
Solidarity involves individuals being ready to suffer on behalf of the larger group, and they're expecting other individual members to do as much for them. It is difficult to talk about these feelings coolly. They touch on intimate feelings of loyalty and sacredness. When it, um, uh, anyone who has accepted trust and defended sacrifice or willingly given either knows the power of the social bond. Attempts to, to bring it out into the light of day, the social bond, and to investigate it are resisted. Yet it needs to be examined. Everyone is affected directly by the quality of trust around him or her. And I would add now, them. Sometimes a gullible steadfastness allows leaders to ignore the public need. Sometimes trust is short-term and fragile, easily dissolving into a panic. Sometimes mistrust is so deep that cooperation is impossible, end quote. I, per I think this describes actually kind of the affective state of the university itself, like as an institutional structure for many of us. Um, so faculty and staff should hear in those words something of the demands that activist students are making of us and also of each other. And also... From Douglas, we can glean a sense, a little bit of insight into the nature of the impasses, the blockages, and the resistance that's encountered on many campuses right, by students as they try to push change. In the push for conversation and thoughtfulness about trigger warnings, student hunger strikes, um, in, in student hunger strikes protesting systemic racism, in the fight for graduate student unions, in the call to take down statues and rename buildings, in the push for a more inclusive and welcoming campus, we see students making this kind of willingness to sacrifice their own time at school, for example, for the project of making the school a better place. How else, though, can, can we understand faculty resistance to the legitimacy of student demands for a more just campus, right, um, if it's not as a resistance to a consideration of the deep structures which organize our sense of work and our relationship to the institution, which organize our labor, how we understand our labor, how, how we understand our location, our sense of place, and even a sense of meaning in our lives. Um, I'm just skipping this part where I do a little bit of a discussion of Laura Kipnis's work, because um, I've been trying to understand why um, her book, Unwanted Advances, which really... Um, uh, vilifies, I think, um, student activists in particular on taking up the uh, issue of harassment. Um, and it's, it's gotten a far more generous reception. Um, it, I would say the generosity of the reception is, of that book has been deeply disturbing. <laughs> so I find it even hard to discuss because um, I feel pretty betrayed by that fact, actually. Um, in any case... Um, and this is kind of, for me, part of this larger story that's going to get woven into this manuscript that's really about grief and betrayal in relationship to the institution as this kind of recurring part of the story of kind of queer lives in relationship to institutions. The problem of grief and mourning is, of course, an old one for gay, lesbian, and trans people, for people living on the social margins. A phobic public shames people to death, sometimes with disapproving solemnity, other times with a maniacal fury. Quote, seldom as a society so savage people during their hour of loss, Douglas Crimp writes from the midst of the AIDS crisis, quote, the violence we encounter is relentless, the violence of silence and omission almost as impossible to endure as the violence of unleashed hatred and outright murder, end quote. Much of queer theory's initial momentum was derived from this need to describe the compound forms of grief that were specific to the AIDS crisis, in which we, one experienced an acceleration and accumulation of loss as well as a prohibition against acknowledging that loss, and furthermore, a grief at the loss of the forms of experimental sexual communities which defined the 1970s and which were fragilized 
if not destroyed, in a sense, by the mid-1990s. Sex changed. Sex, that's what sex does. Sex moves, it drifts, sex recedes from us, it returns, hopefully. <laughs> but in this essay, <laughs> Crimp uh, describes the lining up of death with the transformation of a specific community's sense of not just sexual possibility, but sexual being, being possible. AIDS amplifies, condenses, accelerates a problem that's already there, that always already there problem conditions loss. The word queer for me works best when it describes a resistance to certain modes of relation, to that sense of property that shapes our sense of loss or can shape our sense of loss. It works best when it has a non-defensive relationship to the future, when it expresses a difficult relationship to law and to family, in part because so much queer life is staged somewhere else. We lose and recover, we, we lose and recover and lose and recover our families. Queer life is a way of living that makes it very hard to think about your life and the lives of your friends as an estate, as a set of things bound together and bound to people by law, which also organizes those things' movement across time to address the um, archive issue that several of you have mentioned. Death catches us before the distance between our lives and the law have been, um, the distances between our lives and the law have been acknowledged and mapped. Without a will, families take over the work of a friend's burial. There's nothing quite like it. Spending those first weeks so grief-struck, wanting to help, unsure if one should push, watching the family claim a friend's body as if they were taking it back, letting that happen, because really, that claim on their body is what they have. Your mode of having him, which was never having him, can't be buried. This is an aside. Brian had the most angled relationship to the word queer. I do not remember him ever using it himself to describe himself. I do not remember him coupling except once an enduring relationship with a woman in the last year of his life. And yet, around maybe a year or two after we first met, Brian co-hosted with Jose an infamous dinner party at, in, um, at Duke uh, that was exclusive, which is where we went to grad school, that was exclusively for vulgar practicing homosexuals. <laughs> For, in other words, people who were not queer in theory, and I was not invited. <laughs> anyway, I, I wasn't angry about it, but a lot of people were. It's <laughs> because Brian. I was like, <laughs> anyway, it's amazing. And actually, when after he died, you know, his parents came to see us, and he was very had a difficult relationship with his family, and of course they were devastated, you know, and they were trying to understand him. And, and that word queer was something that his dad in particular kept tripping over. I don't want to say he was homophobic. That wasn't my vibe. He just was trying to understand. And he'd be like, was he queer? And we would all just be like. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, different communities live with this problem. Certain deaths, the deaths which are not the good deaths at home, surrounded by loved ones, expected peaceful deaths. These, the um, deaths that are not good deaths leave behind confusion and debris. Slow deaths become quick. We grieve outside institutional structures because our losses are too easily folded into institutional folklore about our foolishness, our failures, our recklessness, our naivete. M is a shimmering presence in my thoughts. I see M standing in the middle of the classroom. Everyone else is seated, including me. M was a student in a course centered on intimacy as a problem. We read Octavia Butler's trilogy, Lilith's Brood, for three weeks. There are so many different kinds of loneliness in that text, the loneliness of captivity and isolation, the loneliness of being a freak, the loneliness of being without love, and there's three different quotes here. 
There came a time when she could not stop talking to herself, when it seemed that every thought that occurred to her must be spoken out loud. She would make desperate attempts to be quiet, but somehow the words began to spill from her again. She thought she would lose her sanity, had already begun to lose it. She began to cry. That's from Dawn, the first book in the trilogy. And the next two are from Adulthood Rights, which is the second. These men not only frightened him, they made him agonizingly lonely. And better to be completely alone than lonely among dangerous creatures he did not understand. Was Octavia Butler lonely? Nearly all of her work describes the situation of people who are at once isolated and also too connected to people. A black woman dragged across time over and over again to rescue a white male ancestor whose survival is a precondition for her existence. That's the plot of Kindred. Empaths and seers linked into a network of multitudes which make them all seeing and also at risk of obliteration. That's Pattern Master, Parable of the Talents. Beings who grieve lost love by dissolving into matter. That's the last in the trilogy, Lilith Brood, Imago. Lilith Brood was the course Urtext. The story centers on an alien species with complex reproductive and attachment practices. Have any of you read Lilith Brood? Just like one person. <laughs> so I've got to explain Oankali sex. So <laughs> um, when, you re uh, uh, yeah, when you reproduce with the Oankali, you participate in the creation of new beings beings who are not entirely recognizable, not entirely knowable by their parents. The Oankali, the as beings, are change. Reproduction in the world of this trilogy requires five participants, and it's facilitated by a sex gender called Uloi, as a member of that five. Um, Uloi mediates sexual interactions between species pairs, right? So it'd be like a human reproductive pair and then an Oankali reproductive pair with the Uloi actually making the reproduction happen between the two uh, couples. In the world of Oankali sex, pairs are not attached to an all-powerful binarized gender grid, but linked by a triangulation to other couples. It's pretty amazing. Um, Uloi amplify attachment and pleasure. They intensify intimacy while also inserting themselves between people because that's how they have sex. You lay on either side of the uloi, um, and then it puts its tentacles in you. Um, and then you meet through the body of the uloi. Okay, so uloi are shapeshifters and need loving structures of attachment in order to hold their form. Broken off by the end of the trilogy, um, uh, broken off from their family pairs, they risked devolving into limbless slugs. Quote, Aeor was strong again, able to walk all day, live on whatever it ran across. And if we slept with it every two or three nights, it could hold its shape. Yet with us all around, it was hideously lonely, empty, almost blank. It could follow and care for itself just barely. I had to touch it sometimes to rouse it. It was as though it were lost within itself and only surfaced when we were in contact. It rarely spoke. And another one about the same character. It had no control of itself. But like a rock rolling downhill, it had inertia. Its body wanted to be less and less complex." End quote. Butler's narrators use it when referring to Uloi characters. The students in my class went right for this language problem. It dehumanizes. We talked about this for 10 weeks. We started using Uloi to describe certain kinds of characters in other novels, mediators, triangulators, characters who are defined by, in, and through, and who get off on relationships which they author. She's very Uloi, the students would say. 
But what to do, students wondered, with the linguistic entanglement of gender and recognizable personhood, especially when referring to a character who feels so much, who enables and enhances feelings for others, who is super sexual, and whose intimacy with others is so powerful that without it, they dissolve. It felt wrong. In 2010, a man assaulted a trans student at a nearby campus. He carved the word it onto the student's chest. In those sometimes challenging classroom discussions, a group of students informed us that they had been using they as a way around the binary pronoun problem. These students gave us a quick lesson in the use of they, them. I learned with the class. I'm not sure, however, that I took it as seriously then as I should have. It struck me as idealistic, as a noble enterprise. Language is so big and so fluid. How does one change the primary uh, grammar of the world, right? This feminist professor of sexuality studies did not expect to feel so clumsy around gender, but around 2012, I most definitely was. And when I look back at this time of linguistic transition, I'm sure that I misgendered especially younger people in conversation, which is odd, given that lot long before I went to grad school, when I was one of those younger people, I saw Monique Vatique give a talk. This is pretty much why I went to grad school. Um, that talk uh, was the, what would become her essay on the social contract. Flee, flee from heterosexuality, she urged us. <laughs> I tell that story all the time, so you know, if you see me in a month, you're gonna hear it again. So we, uh, I was reading Le Guerrier in a seminar, and I went right up to her after that talk was over, and I asked her about pronouns, because I was reading it in translation, and she, um, uh, I asked her about the play between they and the women in the English translation of this experimental novel, a novel that describes a feminist revolt against gender itself, and where in French, the third person plural is always either feminine or masculine, elle or il, in English, elle translates as they. But in Les Guerrières, a revolt against gender itself, right, elle is rendered in the English transition as the women. Why, I wanted to know, is elle se font peur translated as the women frighten each other, and not they frighten each other? She explained that the literary experiment of her text is really quite specific to the situation of the French language and that if she had written it in English, she might have given it a different shape. She encouraged us to edit the translation with a marker and to do what we needed to do, right, to put it in the language that we wanted it to be in. That at least is how I remember her advice. And I have to say that blew my mind. <laughs> I was like, I can just rewrite your book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, when she talked about the gen when we talked about the gender binary in the 80s and the 90s, he and she really was it. It felt like all there ever would be. Experiments with new pronouns were utopian. Uh, I might cross out each instance of the women in uh, the English translation of Le Guerrier, but such a gesture was only, only really, a local experiment. Of course, I use pronouns fluidly when speaking with and about people in my life. For some, gender is so specific, mutable, relational. One might use a he in one context, a she in another. But it was then, it was then a very big deal to use both about the same person, oneself or another. And actually a really big deal in um, academic writing. Uh, you had to fight copy editors and whatnot. It was like, because um, it, it seemed confusing, right? Um, the word she in particular has so much elasticity, as we well know, stretching the feminine to include not just people, but their moods, their attitudes, their potentialities. Oh, that sounds like her. But of course, this bounce from he to she back and back again is never, was never right for a lot of gendery people who are non-binary. In fact, for some people, this is as negating as it. 
Until the winter of 2012, when I was teaching M, I had thought of gender play at the pronoun level as a particular local action taken by individuals within very bounded circles, like an experimental performance or poetry community. Until then, I had never heard people make easy use of alternative pronouns like Z, uh, V, or they in conversation outside the sexual margins. And this conversation for me was happening actually in a class that was like 75 people. So I had not seen the use of these kinds of pronouns except in these very exper experimental like queer writing, which I taught. Right? So, <laughs> new discursive communities form in front of our eyes. That is the privilege of being in the classroom for a long time. One actually sees change. That change, however, is not always one in which a teacher can participate, at least not in the same way and not at the same pace that students do. We bear witness to all kinds of transformations, and it's exhilarating. It's also disorienting and humbling, and sometimes it feels like a loss. Sometimes it can mean that our own ways of being are becoming illegible, and that can feel demoralizing, or it can feel liberating, or some combination of both. Eve Sedgwick writes, in her essay on the pedagogy of Buddhism, or it's called Pedagogy of Buddhism. It's often too late when we recognize the resistance of a student as a form of pedagogy aimed at us and inviting our mimesis. We may wonder after whether and how we could have managed to turn into the particular teacher needed by that student. Perhaps their implication has been, try it my way if you're going to teach me, or even, I have something more important to teach you than you have to teach me, end quote. That essay is dedicated to Brian and revolves in part around Buddhist instructions for dying and for working with the dying. Those teachings were, of course, very much on her mind as this dying was Eve's condition. She was, at the time, living with cancer. It is, of course, also, however, the condition. People are always learning to negotiate with each other and with each other's conditions, with the conditions of our living and dying. What negotiation is and what it means and how we recognize the requests made within negotiations change. Language changes all the time. It's a living, fluid thing. We would negotiate with that. Gender itself as a felt aspect of one's being as a set of institutions and codes is a living and fluid thing, and we negotiate with that. Emerging linguistic protocols of sex, gender feel alien only, only because our encounters with new and different protocols, new and different practices of what's said and not said, new and different ways of welcoming each other. In these, new, in these negotiations, we stumble over our own and each other's experiences of foreignness, of our illegibility, the not fully translatable nature of what sex and gender are for us as they become for us. Something, sometimes it feels like we're losing our shape, like Aeor in Imago. The pronoun expansion to they is practical. The English language has long made room for the singular use of they, them. Prolound proliferation feels good. It is good. And in some contexts, it can be joyous. Look what happens to a sentence when that sentence is about Mix, Justin, Vivian, Bond, whose preferred pronoun is V, V self. V invites us to meet V's qualities at the level of the sentence. Sometimes, however, I see V referred to as them. And word is now, they are also open to she. With her, we cross, mix, and, and branch out to V. Right? These are all ways that she, she, they, V, refers to themselves. Themselves? <laughs> they creates a possibility. They forces you to attend to a pronoun's context. In all of the things it does not tell you, it communicates some of the things these pronouns can never be adequate to. Is this one person or more? What of this person is in this word? 
Its shape is contextual. It is not genderless. It is not unsexual. It contains a sense of gender, a sense of sex. Them creates a wonderful possibility. As a word, it enacts a proliferation, a confusion. It unsettles the oneness of things. It makes room in the sentence for pluralized self. It is, in that sense, very uloi. But it is also true that pronouns do not center everyone's sense of being recognized. It is also true that the emergence of protocols in which we begin by introducing our pronouns to each other uh, um, to each other centers our recognition of each other in sex and gender, and for some people, that's also marginalizing. Not necessarily because they have gender privilege, right, in which case your sense of gender legibility is so naturalized that making it visible feels intrusive, but because how a person might experience themselves as sexual subjects may be fused to other dimensions of being, like race, ability, size, age, at the moment, too, the use of gender pronouns at the threshold of a conversation might, in some contexts, read as a form of elitism, as a protocol more particular to, say, an elite university campus than to, say, communities of the working poor. It is one very powerful vector of identity difference and identity consolidation, in other words, among others. It is one way of asking us to pay attention to how we address each other. Of course, I'm like writing this in a university context where students are still being corrected in their writing and kind of schooled and disciplined around uh, their desire to use they, them. Thinking about Eve and M, I turn to Gary in My Pocket, a collection of Gary Fisher's writing that was edited by Eve Sedgwick and published in 1996, three years after Gary Fisher had died of AIDS at the age of 32. Eve had been his teacher at UC Berkeley, and she was my teacher at Duke. The book embodies her commitment to the people who were her students. I pulled the tall, narrow shelf off my, uh, the, the tall, narrow volume off my shelf and turned to its introduction, which was written by the uh, writer Don Belton. That essay opens, quote, Gary Fisher's death came in a season of deaths of young black men I call brother, end quote. Gary at the table, Don's essay, weaves the story of knowing Gary Fisher into an account of losing and loss. Fisher's, quote, dangerous and crucial writing was never published during his life. Right? Don Belton describes Fisher's writing as, quote, holding unpolished truths and naked pleasures and as reaching into bleeding wounds born in the abiding love and warfare between black men and white men in America, end quote. Gary Fisher never finished his dissertation like Brian and did not seem particularly keen to. Sedgwick and her afterward explains, quote, his identity as a graduate student and teacher were important to him but the reading and writing that meant the most to him was hardly oriented toward that career path, end quote. Don Belton puts this failure in context. Quote, the imperative to constantly reread success is an essential piece of the enduring American legacy. Given our particular history, black Americans must create a discourse about success that gives centrality to notions of freedom. Within such a context, black failure, if only for what it instructs about black resistance, is as worthy of study even celebration as black so-called success, end quote. There's no way to put this well. Don Belton was murdered in 2010 by a young man who invoked gay panic in defense of a premeditated assault. This is one reason I reached for the book after M died. It indexed so many forms of loss at once. I slipped online and lost some time rereading documents from the trial of Don's killer. Years ago, I'd taken an interest in the case in part because my colleague Lyndon Barrett was killed in July 2008. Like Don, Lyndon was murdered by a younger man, an acquaintance, the police said. The man who killed Lyndon died in jail before he was brought to trial. He died on Christmas 2009, just before Don was murdered. Rumors cut through the circles 
of those of us who were following Lyndon's case. Did the 22-year-old Mexican man die of respiratory distress as reported, or was he killed for reporting the brutality of the guards working in the jail? Not long after, the Los Angeles County jail system was investigated for widespread serious inmate abuse. The ACLU, the American Civil, uh, Civil Liberties Union, described the system as having been run, that, that system as being run by, quote, a savage gang of deputies, end quote. Justin Joyce and Dwight McBride confront this murder cluster in their epilogue to Lyndon's posthumously published book, Racial Blackness and the Discontinuity of Western Modernity. Quote, what we do know is that Lyndon's death was extraordinarily similar to several other murders of prominent gay black intellectuals in recent years. There's like two or three other men just all like, who all like knew each other. They briefly review the story of, of four older gay black men, intellectuals connected to each other, who were slain by much younger men, men whose crimes were motivated by sexual fear. And then they challenge the reader to consider the life conditions for the queer of color intellectual. They write, quote, this shockingly ra shocking rash of strikingly similar murders raises more questions than simply the motivations of the assailants. In particular, one is called to wonder at the loneliness that may have led established intellectual black men to pursue relationships with men so much younger. Far from a prescriptive, prescriptive commentary on who one should or shouldn't love, we raise this question to ponder not only the profound homophobia of American society, which frames the lives and choices of the young male perpetrators, but also the isolation of gay black intellectuals targeted as victims. Alienated from gay communities by their race, ostracized from communities of color by both their sexual orientation and by scholarly aspiration, men and women who juggle the admixture of race, sex, and class distinctions in their most poignant and complex intersections are often estranged from the very communities others frequently draw upon as sources of solace, courage, and creativity. I should say just a footnote. It's Lyndon's murder was really important to the writing of Campus Sex, Campus Security, because that, was, that really ha haunted me insofar as there was like no conversation at work except with my uh, gay friends in the department. Like, so we would have conversations amongst us about how he died. There's no discussion about the significance of his death to, LGBT, to the LGBT community and how he died and why that was so important. Anyway, um, and I think that uh, McBride and Joyce are actually, what they're reflecting on here is that in the institution problem, like that there's, you have these various institutional, these various kinds of structures like family, school, um, church, right? And um, uh, that the, uh, the queer color intellectual is alienated from all of them and even like a kind of a problem to all of them. Anyway, I read this and I wonder, were Lyndon and Don lonely? It always, struck, it always strikes me as a strange word to use for them because they're both very social very open. A thought intrudes on me. The men who killed them most absolutely definitely were lonely. Joyce and McBride are careful to situate their speculation on the specific forms of loneliness with which these men lived as a thought emerging from their labor of recovering Lyndon Barrett's work for a community of readers. This care for the archive of this thought is staged against or in spite of structures that do not recognize, never mind a sustained black intellectual life work, especially insofar as that life work inhabits necessarily incomplete, imperfect, and fragile forms. Yes, living and working in these margins can be lonely making, but for some it is far less lonely making than, li than life lived in more stable, complete forms. The horror is when the deaths of the people you love is presented as some kind of judge from judgment from on high. And here there is a point of commonality in the ways that gay men, men of color, and especially gay men of color have gone 
I could feel it around Jose's death. People made all kinds of assumptions about it, plugged the fact of it into his story about the world, into a story about what they thought they knew of his world. In an essay on Eve's writing about Gary Fisher, Jose describes queer forms of plurality in which teacher and student share a sense of each other's incommensurate differences. Eve Sedgwick and Gary Fisher's relationship to each other is staged in many, in the, there's like a, a half dozen essays on uh, Eve Sedgwick's uh, relationship to Gary Fisher and his writing um, as a white woman editor for a black man's uh, unpublished work. So that were, their relationship is generally presented as a set of problems, right? Differences of race, class, gender, and sexuality. One cannot read their friendship as, say, marking out a solution, right? In this kind of sense of equation where somehow that, um, that problem can only be reduced by the generation of a similarity between them. Sedgwick and Fisher, Jose writes, quote, perform and map a relational schema that is not based on commensurate singularities, right, where we're both kind of unique in the same way, but instead a vaster commons of the incommensurable, end quote. How to think about their collaboration as not a form of complicity, which is actually how it's often cast, um, that he's somehow compromised by allowing Eve to edit his work, right, um, um, or that she's somehow alibying him for entry into some kind of spa literary space that he couldn't get into by himself, right? How to think of their collaboration as not a form of complicity, but actually as a form of resistance, or perhaps not resistance, perhaps survival, or perhaps both. These circuits of belonging, these networks of non-equivalence are not easily articulated, and they require forms of openness from us. Our encounters with the incommensurate are, quote, full of violent collision, especially when we think about the history of dispossessed people, end quote, that's from Jose. At this juncture in the essay, Jose refers to Don Belton and Lyndon Barrett's deaths to the annihilating violence which storms through this fragmented account of queer pedagogy and queer loss. What Joyce and McBride describe as a form of loneliness, Jose describes as a kind of vulnerability, which is different. Loneliness grows into the spaces that open up around differences where those differences are not cared for. One becomes vulnerable when one opens oneself up to this possibility of being lonely. It is hard to overstate the impact of Lyndon's murder on my department, and I can hardly imagine what it meant to those who worked with him for much longer than we had. He only worked with us for a year, um, but worked at a neighboring campus and so was part of our community. His death is part of a pileup of workplace grief and injury. Another gay colleague, Greg Bredbeck, who went to college, who actually went to graduate school with Lyndon and with another colleague of mine. Greg died from a combination of gay troubles, illness, addiction, depression. A third, whom I won't name, was dismissed from the university after multiple students came forward with a range of harassment complaints. And in that zone, I was stalked by a psychotic student. I don't actually often name her as psychotic, so now I'm like, oh, it's being recorded, but yeah. The lesson here could be that the world is an awful, awful place, but don't we already know that? Don't many of us actually already know that intimately? Whatever we have meant to signal with a term like queer, it, was, it is not a ground to defend. The idea is by, by definition indefensible, not only because it is always already fucked and fucked with, but because it holds within it the possibility for non-oppositional modes of being with, which is actually the signal, like that defines Sedgwick's like later work, is this interest in these kinds of non-oppositional modes of being. Um, queerness for me, following that uh, period of Sedgwick's work enables non-paranoid forms of oppositionality as something to work for, to, to work towards or to move through 
A queer defense, in other words, can only be establishing fleetingly as a camp. These are not forms of relation in which no harm is ever done. These are forms of relation in which harm means and signifies differently. Injury might hurt more, but it might hurt less. In certain, sexual, in certain kinds of sexual spaces, shared experiences of sexual violence do not fulfill an ideological promise. They do not cement one's position in a world as its forever victim. Queer modes of attachment and being in the world sustain our capacity to resist the conscription of death in the service of the supercharged sexist racist death trip. If queerness is anything, it is a shared sense, a shared sense of end times, a shared sense of possibility, a shared sense of sexual ethics. None of these senses of things can be sustained in and of themselves, and none of these things can achieve a steady state. Something which once felt queer can become regulatory. It can become a new code of conduct. This might signal a systemic adjustment and improvement on the system. Queerness is, if it is anything, is a way of being with each other as we move toward and away, with each, uh, away from each other. When the word itself has finally been fully absorbed by, by the system, whatever that word had been signaling and signifying will emerge again from somewhere else. I try to remember M, but instead I write about them, not one, but many. M appears in my memory, standing up in the middle of the classroom, as if she has been called to attention. I see her as she was then. I look for the traces of who she was becoming. Thank you. I think that might have been pretty long, so I don't, yeah, that's not too bad.